that? Is that the baptistry? No. All right. All right. Good evening. One of the things that you may notice, struck, I, I try not to make it noticeable, but it struck tonight, is that really the entire time that we sing or do anything on Wednesday night, I am continually adding to my paper. As you can see, there's yellow and there's green and there's red, but anything that you see here that's black, that was added tonight. And that last song that we sung just wasn't quite long enough for, for what I needed. So y'all might have thought it was too long, but I was, I needed, we needed one more verse of that just to, be, just to be sure. Tonight we are going to be looking at Ezekiel. In many ways, these lessons have been structured as a, in a sense, as a trip through Babylonian captivity over the last few weeks. And um, if you'll remember, uh, we talked about Isaiah, um, and Isaiah spoke to how we described a disheartened people. Uh, Jeremiah last week, which for the sake of our storytelling probably should have went before Isaiah, Jeremiah spoke about the people being removed from Israel. But Ezekiel, in many ways, will serve as sort of the prophet of captivity. And Ezekiel was there with the people. And in many ways, Ezekiel will sort of extol the positives of captivity. And if you think about going through the struggles of life, and we looked at that last week with Lamentations, if you think about, you know, sort of grief and acceptance and all those sort of things, in many ways, Ezekiel comes in at the very end. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah are all considered major prophets. And the word major doesn't really mean anything about their significance. There are minor prophets as well. But major is simply a term that is used at a later date to describe books that were fairly large. Uh, for instance, the book of Isaiah was 66 chapters. Jeremiah was 52. Lamentations is considered a major prophet, mostly just because it was written uh, by Jeremiah. Ezekiel is 48. But here in a couple of weeks, when we get past Daniel, we'll look at some others. And for instance, Micah is only seven chapters. The book of Jonah uh, is four chapters. So Obadiah is one chapter. It's simply 25, I think 28 verses, I believe. Uh, that just goes through. So the term major and minor, you know, sometimes we might use that term. Uh, you know, we, talk, we might talk about major league baseball and minor league baseball, and the major leaguers are the best players, and the minor leaguers are hoping to get to that level. That's not the way we use that term uh, here, but that's, uh, that's kind of what, uh, what we're looking at. <clears throat> A couple of times we've mentioned this, but I do want to sort of be critical of the layout of the Bible, because if you remember, a while back, we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah, <clears throat> and Ezra went back first to Jerusalem and to Israel, and Nehemiah went back later to preach, but that's been months ago for us, but the Bible is laid out the way that it is. It's categorized and grouped. Uh, Mom has a poster in her classroom that shows how the books are 
laid out historically, and then there's uh, uh, <clears throat> law and writings and that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a lady that I work with, and she has promised me something the last couple of days, and she's not brought it yet. But she told me she has a chronological Bible, and it basically tells everything in the Bible from start to finish. Now, Boo was intrigued by that, but she told me, she said, Daniel, I will bring you this, and you will hate it. She said, because even though it's in order, she said, it is not in the order in which you look at it at church. And she said, you'll spend your whole time reading through it completely confused and thinking, why is this like it is? But in many ways, we get sort of acclimated to things, even though there's no layout of the Bible that is right or official or anything. It is a grouping together of books. Part of the reason is we make a mistake of assuming the Bible is a book. It's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of 66 quote-unquote books. In the reality, there's scrolls, there are letters, there are any number of different things. But we sort of get ourselves locked into that. Stop me if you've heard this before. We get kind of locked into a traditional way and we have a hard time breaking away from that. None of that matters, but I just wanted to tell you that. Uh, a little bit about major and minor. Sometimes your Bible will uh, break that down that way. So tonight we're going to look at three things for uh, Ezekiel and kind of wrap this up uh, when we talk about prophets and Babylonian captivity. First, we're going to look at a little bit of historical background of Ezekiel. Second, we're going to look at four parts of the mission of Ezekiel. But when we look at that, I want you to think about how can this be a church mission today? Because Ezekiel was in no way, shape, or form talking about the church as it existed in 2021. But we can take lessons, Bible says things that were taught but previously were written for our learning. And so I think we can take that and apply it to us now. And then the last thing we're going to look at are benefits of captivity. And that may seem really odd, and it's probably easier for me to look back thousands of years later and say, oh, they benefited from it. But if we've looked at Jeremiah talking about just the disaster that this was, and Isaiah explaining to people that even though they were oppressed on all sides, that hopefully they could grow from this, we're going to see Ezekiel and benefits that perhaps came from it. All right, so that's what our three goals for tonight. First of all, this is the 26th book of the Old Testament, and uh, this is the prophet Ezekiel, roughly 590 to 570 uh, is when this was written. Ezekiel is one of the last, Ezekiel I would say would be the last of the um, Babylonian captive prophets that there were. He's really the last one. Uh, Isaiah and Micah write way, way back when. That, that was way before captivity. But if in order, Zephaniah, Nahum, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Jeremiah and Lamentations, and then Ezekiel, all are in a rough time period during this captivity. And Ezekiel is the last one. A little bit further, uh, we'll see a couple of these different things. Dad wrote about the dry bones. Once we got him there, he, was, uh, he didn't want to read it, but uh, we'll get there in just a second. But tonight we're going to talk about Ezekiel. I found this picture uh, online. I just thought it was pretty. Uh, Connie asked me last week, where do I get the pictures? And I just Google search and see what comes up. I try to find things that might be appealing to you all uh, while, you, uh, while you look at it. All right. Well, let's talk just, uh, yes, sir. Can I ask you? Yeah. I've been thinking about the 
what did they call the years? Because there was no 590 BC because Christ had not been born. What, did they just have calendars that they? Well, we talked. Remember a couple months ago, we talked about the Jewish calendar, and they had the, the years of the okay. Jewish calendar. So. Uh, the notion of what their names were were just rolled through. But that's where you get stuff like Jubilee, uh, you know, the seventh year, uh, and then the Jubilee of Jubilees, which would be the 50th year, uh, that, that you would have those kinds. So this Jewish life, Jewish life almost entirely centered around the calendar and things that you did at a certain time. But now, I, I don't know that they necessarily was hanging a calendar up that said year one, per se, like that. All right, let's talk a little bit about who Ezekiel was. First of all, uh, a lot of what we do to start with is going to be there, and then we'll have some scriptures that will come up uh, afterwards. But Ezekiel was deported to Babylon, as you can see there, with the second group of exiles, including Jehoiachin in 597 B.C. We just can't get rid of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Those are, uh, those are guys that are just going to stick with us forever. But we talked about how last week there were different groups that were sent. They, they, they took the first group, and then there was a the second group. Uh, and then ultimately what was left was people left there to farm and it just kind of, they were robbing in a sense, the people of Israel of all of their skill. We would use the term brain drain, uh, perhaps today, but while there we see Ezekiel prophesying to the remnants of a shattered nation. Ezekiel is really the one prophet that we see that was sort of in captivity with them. Bear with me for just a second, living amongst the people and sort of communicating with them on a daily basis. You think about Jeremiah, he was there, sort of the world was disappearing. And Isaiah was writing, but Isaiah's stories, Isaiah was a different character, you know, than maybe, but Ezekiel is sort of right in there amongst them. And the people that were maybe suffering, although we'll find out tonight that they weren't really suffering that much, Ezekiel was there with them. And so he showed them as you can see there, that Jerusalem would be destroyed for her sins. We talked about this last week. The city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, but offers them comfort and hope that they would eventually be restored to their homeland. We look at this now and we think, oh, well, this happened. And a few years later, this happened. But at the time, they needed a little bit more comforting, a little bit more information, a little bit more help of what was going to be for them. Jewish people lived as captives in Babylon but were treated, and this is something that I read that I found interesting, in a sense they were treated more like a colonist than a slave. They weren't really enslaved. They were just there, and they had been taken over. If you remember, who were the first people that they took into Babylon? What kind of people did they take? Remember last week we looked at these. What were the, the types of people? The young, the intelligent, the blacksmiths, the people that, that had skills. Those people were not brought there so they could work in a field. Why do you think they brought those people there? They were valuable. Those people had value. And so, in a sense, you could look at it like a slave, but not really the way we think of slavery. It's not necessarily biblical slavery. But also, these people provided something to Babylon that, that was necessary. This always happens, and this is a, a history teacher coming out of me. But when a group of people is taken over, you don't get rid of the valuable people. You get rid of the people that don't provide value. But they took from Israel the people that were valuable. And those people held jobs. And those people increased their numbers, and they increased their wealth. They made money while they were there. Some of them, we'll see, uh, we're not, I don't think we're going to talk about them but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have risen to very high offices. I don't think we're going to do that with Daniel because Dad did that a, few, a couple months ago. So I think we're going to 
do something different uh, on that one. But this showed that people had made it to a high point. These were high-level people in some cases. In Babylon, they actually had religious freedom, the ability to worship. But the problem is, is that worshiping the God of Israel had been removed. You know, what was the center of the world for people in Israel? Where was the center of their life? The temple. But there's no temple. And this is not even like tabernacle when they was coming through the woods. They built the temple and then they moved it. There was no temple. So when there's no temple, where do you worship? Maybe not anywhere. What if this church wasn't here tonight? Where would you have worshipped? Maybe at home. Maybe. What if there's no church? Do you think there's anybody who's ever worshipped at a place, moved to another place, and there wasn't a church there, so they just started worshipping somewhere else? That's a lot, right? So what do you think these children of Israel, when they find their way to, when they go to Babylon, what do you think some of them are going to start worshiping? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some did, but that's where we use that word remnant. A lot of them just started worshiping the gods of Babylon. Here's the reason. The people that were in Babylon were who were going to buy the supplies from you. They were who were going to offer you money. They were who were offering you jobs. That's where you network. Right? You would, I could go to my little remnant church over here with all these people that are captive, or I could go to this other place where all the important people are, and I can add to my wealth. This was what, of course you do. You absolutely see the same thing. And so prosperity in Babylon led people to sort of adopt those gods that the Babylonians had, and it drew them away from the God of Israel. There's a lot of people that go to Babylon, but not everybody comes back. A lot of people said, we're okay with where we are. Daniel and Ezekiel, as you can see there, are influential in bringing or in helping to keep a remnant of people uh, remaining faithful during this time period. Now, that was important because if Ezekiel and Daniel, but especially for tonight's sake, we'll just talk about Ezekiel. If they don't do this, what might happen to the people of Israel? And what might happen to the worship of the people of Israel? So we'll talk about lessons from there comparing it to today. What happens to people who worship God today if the worship isn't held? What happens to the people who worship God today if worship isn't available or worship isn't held? Very good. Very good. What does that do? Mary, you said something. Oh, so they're either faithful enough to worship independently or they aren't. But that's difficult, right? It's easy to say, oh, I do this and I do that, but when there's not there, it makes it difficult. And so Ezekiel's job, Ezekiel's role here, in a sense, is to work with the people. Remember, we said he's kind of right in there amongst them and encouraging them, reminding them, speaking with them, working with them. To stay the course, as it were. The mission was still very important. Excuse me, for them. All right. Yes, sir. Mike Johnson Richmond always said that you, the first thing to contemplate if you're contemplating moving to a different location of the country is to find out about the church. Yeah. And he said if the church is not there and not available, you better rethink it. You know, sure. It's going to be a problem. Sure. Absolutely. 
So if we look at this, these are our four points for tonight. We're going to get into each one of these, and we'll have some readings that go along with them as well. But the mission of Ezekiel, if we can break down into four things. Number one, to save this remnant from apostasy. Do we know what apostasy means? Following away. Very good. So we're trying to say, or we don't have to leave. Ezekiel is trying to say the children of Israel from following away. Bless you. Number two, to destroy the false hopes of an early return to Jerusalem. And that's really important. Because if you're a prophet and you're telling the people that they're going to return to Israel, when do you think they're going to want to go? Right Right then. How many of you have had a scheduled vacation that's like months away? Years. And you wake up and you're like, which we're going right now. And it seems like it's going to be forever, right? Well, that distance, just when will we ever get there? When will we ever get there? Well, if you're not careful, if a prophet is telling people, God has said that you will return back to the Holy Land, but you don't go right now, what might happen to the people who are expecting to go back? What's going to happen if you're telling them they're going to get to go, but it doesn't happen immediately? What might happen? People would lose faith in that. So Ezekiel is telling them, there's a place for you, but it's not going to happen tonight. How long does it end up taking before they can go back? Seven years. Seven years is a long time, right? Seven, what if Tony, what if you've got a vacation coming up? What if I tell you now it's going to be 70 years for you to go? It's going to be pretty tough. And then Vermont maple trees just going to have to be there without you, right? So those trips... You know, we want to hear it right then and right there. That, that Pat and Marilyn didn't handle that. They just up and leave at any time. It's, it's like, if you, if you're, you don't get to go forever, Pat will just be destroyed. The third, comfort the captives and assure them of their restoration. You can tell somebody it might not happen tonight, but you can still comfort them and assure them that it will happen. Okay? Maybe Christmas with little kids. Presents under the tree. You can't open that, but I can assure you that you will. And four, emphasize the lesson of personal accountability. Because if you are one of this remnant, if you are promised a chance to go back, then you've got to do your part to get there. Because if they all don't get back tomorrow, I don't have to do anything. I'll just roll right in with them. But this could be years. You all said 70 years, seven decades. It could be a long time before you get to go back. Do I just quit for 70 years and hope it works out? Or do I still continue to worship the way I should? We're going to look at lessons for us mixed in with this. All right. So number one. And then we got a Bible verse, oddly enough, from Jeremiah that we're going to read uh, with this one. But first... To save the remnant from complete apostasy. I like the use of the word complete right here because it's a given that there would be apostasy. Is there a lesson for the church today? Will there be apostasy in the church? Of course there will. And that's sad to see, but I guarantee we can all list multiple people who were in the church and are not now. We probably all could. And it hurts us. And I'm sure there were people in Ezekiel's time that had the same hurt. Ezekiel's job was to preserve the captives taken in 597 from the influence of the captives taken in 586. Remember, they brought the good ones first, then they brought the troublemakers second, right? So he's like, we got to keep these two sort of separate because what if we let them mingle together? 
Well, they thought, what they say about a bushel of apples and one basket, right? You got so you got so he's got right. You guys have got to come here first. Y'all are the good ones. In fact, maybe not say that, but he actually kind of does. He says good things and bad things here in just a second. But they had to keep the two groups sort of separate because they didn't have a lot of faith in the second one that they did in the first. It's from the first group that God would gather a remnant to return to Palestine and restore the nation to its worship. All right. Now, there are two sets of verses. This is Jeremiah 24, verses 4 through 7. And then we're going to read verses 8 through 10. And this emphasizes the importance of separating the trouble from the true worship. All right? So let's look at this. Jill, do you care to read verses 4 through 7? Prophesied, and he said the, the word of the Lord came to him. He had that guy write it down for him, right? He wrote, he had to write that stuff down uh, for him. So again, for we're later on into the book, the word of the Lord comes to me saying, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah. So he's saying, like these good figs, I'm gonna notice, I'm gonna take care, I'm gonna be remembering of these folks. Okay? Now, I don't know a whole lot about figs. You all might do, but I would imagine a good fig is better than a bad fig. Just like a good apple is better than a bad apple. He says, I, the Lord is the, the Lord tells him, says, I will acknowledge these folks. But we don't stop there. We're going to go to verses 8, 9, and 10. Leland, do you care to read those? And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth, for their heart to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse, in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, now, this is a continuation from the previous four verses. And so this is still God talking. And as the bad pigs, which cannot be eaten, it says, why? Because they are so, it's not just bad, but so bad. Have you ever ate an apple that had a bad part to it? And so he's saying all these people, the Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the, I like this word here, the residue. We don't usually use the word residue in a positive sense. The residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, those that dwell in the land of Egypt, he says, can't, it's not going to be for them. So let's think about mission number one, which is save the remnant from complete apostasy. 
What is the lesson for us today? Is there a separation of people today? God insists upon his people being pure. He insists, and today he insists upon the church being pure. And there's, there's, there's information in the Bible that tells us how to keep the church pure. And uh, this, God is so, I debate with these people that he has to take drastic measures to cleanse these people because if not, they're going to continue down the bad road. The church has to do the same thing. We see that a lot of times in this world. Uh, we see that evil is called good and they're celebrating. And uh, God will not have that. It has to, if, 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 you, if we start calling evil good here in this church, this church will cease to exist. It, it, just be, it has to be God will not have it. Okay. It no longer be God's church. That was a different angle than I was thinking, but any other thoughts on it? No, no. Think, all right, let's go to Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. While you're turning there, I would imagine that the, the people that were here, these people writing here, would have still considered themselves to be children of Israel. They would have still considered themselves to be God's chosen people. They could have traced their lineage back to those 12 tribes that came through and that uh, came into Canaan, right? So they would have looked at themselves in a similar boat as the people that quote unquote good fits. So go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Starting in verse 21. Not this Jesus saying here, right here, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This should be familiar. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. In verse 23, Jesus said, and I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I would say that this second group of people is similar to what Jesus was talking about right there. People that would have said they were children of Israel. People that would have claimed themselves to be true worshipers, or to the best of their ability. But Jesus says not everybody who claims that will get that. And he says, at the verse 23, he would say to them, depart from me, I never knew. Is that kind of what we see God doing right here with this group of people? This first group compared to the second group, he compares with good things and bad things. The first group, he's, they have gone, in a sense, what was supposed to be done. The second group, not so much. So we use that, you know, I don't know how many times we've ever looked at Jeremiah chapter 24 as and, and compared it to uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 7, but it relates. Alright, let's go to the second. Click happy here tonight. Number two. Second mission, to destroy, as we said a minute ago, false hopes of an early return to Jerusalem. We see here, they had to learn the spiritual lesson of captivity. They had to rethink their faith. They had to learn the greater spiritual mission of their people. Let me make this a little clearer for you. I need you to go to your room and think about what you've done. Alright, if you're a parent, you probably said this, right? If you're not a parent, you're a child, and you may have had somebody say that to you. I need you to go to your room and think about what you've done. 
Now, when you go to your room to think about what you've done, if you're in there for 30 seconds and then come back, have you adequately thought about what you've done? Probably not, right? On the same token, if you go to your room and you sit there for 15 minutes and stare at the watch the whole time and then shoot out the gate like Secretariat once that 15 minutes is over, have you adequately thought about what you've done? No. Jesus said when he was when he talked about praying, he said, where should you go when you're going to pray? Go to your closet. Why? To get your mind right. To free yourself from distraction so you know what you're doing. What are we reading right here? These people had to learn. Why are we in captivity? They have to figure that out. If we let you go back in 10 minutes, what will you do when you go back? The same thing. If you're supposed to go to your room and think about what you've done, and 30 seconds later you get to come out, what's the punishment? Go back and do it again. Climb on the stove, top of the refrigerator, whatever it is that you're doing. He said, you got to go. You got to think about your faith. You got to figure out why are we not keeping the faith? Ezekiel, though, was there to keep them right. So let's relate it to today. Where do we go on a somewhat regular basis to help keep the faith? Help them in. You're here right now. Is that what this is? Is that what Sunday is? Is that what a backpack giveaway or a gospel meeting or a cookout is? Why do we come together? The fellowship. To be with one another. To strengthen you, but to strengthen ourselves as well. So when we look at this, we need to rethink our faith. Well, I hope that's what we're doing tonight. And I hope that's what we're doing the next night. And I know we can say, well, Ezekiel's there to keep them on the right track. And that's the job of the preacher. I, that's not what I'm doing. It might end up being that way, but that's anybody can do that. Because all of you that are here tonight are playing the role of Ezekiel to me. Because when I see Ron and Joyce here, they are modern day Ezekiels to me. They are strengthening my faith because they are here tonight. We can't have false hopes of what's going to happen, but we can strengthen our spiritual mission, and that's what these people had to do. Now, being on the right track, that means that they can get on the wrong track. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go to the third one. Ezekiel had to comfort the captives and assure them of their restoration. Again, he's right in there amongst This group was defeated and also distraught. What does it mean to be distraught? You kind of give up hope. There's a difference between being defeated and being distraught, right? Defeated doesn't necessarily name the worst thing in the world. Defeated is we'll get them tomorrow kind of thing. But distraught is we're not going to get them ever. And so these people were defeated and were distraught. So how do you get distraught back to defeated? And how do you get defeated back to victorious? You need comfort. Absolutely. How else do you get them back? You need guidance. You need guidance. What else? Anything else? Need the will. Need the will. These are all good terms. I've listened to 
a lot. I, I've heard John Calipari talk several times over the last few months. And as you all remember, it didn't go well last year. Ron and I were talking about how we thought they was going to sub me and him in by the end of the year. We couldn't have been any worse. But Kentucky only won nine games last year. And people were upset. Some people were saying, you got to get rid of the coach after you've won championships and been to Final Fours. But every time I've heard him talk, he just said, I didn't like what happened last year. i got to fix things that happened last year. And our goal is to get back to where we have been. Is that not what this is? When you're defeated and distraught, it can, help, it can lead you to quit. But instead, how do we get back? Well, for these folks, God's going to breathe new life into them. And all these tri- 12 tribes of Israel, remnants of each, would be reunited in their land. All right. This is a longer reading. It's like eight different boxes. Okay? So we're just going to work our way through. Mom, do you care to read the first one? This is Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. So if you want to look in your Bible, it'll go right along, but we'll skip along. Mom, if you can do the first one. So, a little further, Shelby. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Sinews is a word that used to be used. We don't use it much anymore, but it's what connects your muscles and connects your bones and that kind of stuff. And so, all right, let's go a little bit further. The next one, booty character, read the next one. this story right here? What is this description? Is, are we bringing somebody back out of the dirt? It's an analogy. It is. Thank you. It's an analogy. And what is the analogy? That they were spiritually and physically they were, spirit, they were dead. Thank you, Raymond. They were dry bones in the ground. If you go to the graveyard and dug up somebody in the graveyard, if they've been there long enough, what are you going to find? You're going to find bones, and that's it. 
And you can say, stand up, but it's not the way it's going to work, right? But he says, prophesy that you'll do what to these bones? You'll make life out of them. I find this interesting because it's real similar to what we see with, uh, with in the book of Genesis. But when we, he talks about here, he says, do this, prophesy this. But the word prophesy means what? It's to predict. Predict. So in a sense, what we see here is he's, he's, who are the dry bones? The Hebrew children. The Hebrew children. And they're going to bring them back from nothing. Not back from the dead. They existed. But they're going to bring them back to the spiritual faith that they once had. And he's telling Ezekiel right here, your preaching and teaching is going to put the sinews that connect their, 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 their things, their muscles or whatever. He said, he, you're, that's going to put the skin on them. And eventually he said, they're going to rise up as a great, what's it say right there? Last sentence. An exceedingly great army. Okay? What he's saying, right, they're not necessarily going to rise up and fight and kill military. That's not what we mean but an overwhelming group. But they have to be brought back. In a sense, brought back from nothing. Now, this would take Ezekiel comforting and assuring them of their restoration. Because otherwise, these bones won't rise back up. If he's not teaching them, preaching to them, working with them, are the people going to be interested in what is waiting for them? What's the lesson for the church today? lesson of personal accountability. Got a little heavy on the uh, words right over here. But as you can see here, the prophets have been emphasizing collective national responsibility and guilt. I think we saw that in the last couple of lessons that we've had. Like the people of Israel have messed up and this is why this bad stuff has happened. But instead of it being all the children of Israel, they've all messed up and now they're all going into captivity, we see this second thing here. Salvation in God's favor will now come on an individual basis. All those people that went to Babylon weren't coming back to Israel. Who was coming back? Who was going to come back? Because it wasn't all of them. We just said, who was going to, who was going to be coming back? The good things. Very good. The good things. The individuals there. The wicked would not be spared because of the presence of a few good people among them. But the innocent would not bear the guilt of the wicked, wicked, even though they had to share the consequences. Now, I think I have a verse here, but I want to come back to this in just a second. This is Ezekiel 16 uh, through 21. There's two parts. Connie, do you care to read the first part, please, dear? Therefore, hear a word from my mouth, 
and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn away from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Tell me you care to read this last one. Again, when, the righteous, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have to live with your soul. We've talked a lot in these classes about Jesus being Jewish. After reading those six verses, you think Jesus was pretty well schooled in the writings and teachings of the prophets? Is this not almost word for word what Jesus says? He's saying right here, these people that are acting up, these people that are wicked, he says... If you warn them and he doesn't turn from his wickedness, what if you've done all you can do? Now, if we see somebody doing wrong and don't say anything to them, then he says they're at fault. But he says, well, you can't make them do it. This is where we start to see this notion of a chosen people start to disintegrate. Because if it was truly a chosen people, then it wouldn't matter what they had done. But it starts to disintegrate right here. And later when Jesus comes several, you know, about 500 years later, whenever that would be, when Jesus comes, he starts to preach and teach first to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And they went to the Greek pretty quick because he realized pretty quickly that the Jewish people were never going to hear as a whole, as a group, as a solid unit, what he had to say. It becomes an individual it does. It absolutely does. So what does the Bible say in the New Testament? Maybe how do we relate this mission or this lesson to modern day? I was just thinking about James chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone turns it back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the air of the slave to save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's a term we use a lot, cover a multitude of sins, to talk about fixing things that are wrong, right? And also to those that know we do good and do it not sin. Take that one as well. Any others? And also, if, 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 if we don't preach and teach the gospel, right. we are accountable. Right. We're equally accountable. But with that being said, it's still the accountability of the person. When the Bible says we're going to work out our own salvation, right? So, lessons for us, for me and you, right here. This is our last one. Our lessons right here. Is it your responsibility to find your way to heaven? Is it my responsibility to help you find your way to heaven? Is it your responsibility to help me? But is it my responsibility to find my own way? Intertwined, right? I have to help you. You have to help me. But you have to help yourself, and I have to help myself. That was being taught thousands of years ago. Hundreds of years before Jesus came through. Last thing. I'm going to go on.
benefits from captivity. All right, just a few things. I'm going to blow through these kind of quickly because uh, we're right out of time. The benefits of captivity. First of all, the Jewish nation was, in a sense, completely cured of idolatry when they were there. Even the primary sin that was responsible for their captivity is all they know. There's no idolatry even in Judaism, even today. Now, it's a book, it's a religion of the book. They follow that old, what we call the Old Testament, the Torah. They follow it very closely, but there's no idols in that. Second benefit. Synagogue becomes the center for worship and instruction in the law. We've talked a lot about the temple, and the temple was an important social place. But the synagogue was an important teaching and learning place. Synagogue is the Jewish word for what we would describe as church. And so the Jewish people, they, they, the synagogue, church, if we want to use that term, became very important. That's where you go to learn. That's where you go to study. You see Jewish people today, it's constant study. Now, they're, they don't necessarily agree with things that we believe, but it's constant study. So remnant from this captive. They collected and collated their sacred literature. We have this in part because of the Jewish people gathering that together. And religion became more personal and spiritual, and it took away the elaborate ceremony that sort of existed in Judaism. And it, the people that, that were in the temple was like, you do this, and you do this, and it more personal instead for them. Uh, they become more united in their ideas and purposes. The Jews remained a separate people, clung to each other, giving them strength to withstand the difficulties that they would encounter. We can go throughout history the difficulties that the Jewish people have encountered. I talked with my world religion students a couple weeks ago. How do we relate the Exodus to the Holocaust? Well, there's tons of things in Judaism that people, the Jewish people have suffered from. You can go back to this captivity and find that strength there for them. You begin to understand and appreciate their destinies and, uh, as a mission as a nation. And it actually strengthens the restoration movement. These people who were being taught, they realized what they were going back to. And them going back sows the seeds for what will come with Jesus shortly thereafter. Well, unfortunately, appealed to a lot of people, and not everybody went back. Some people stayed in Babylon. They liked it better where they were rather than go back. And this separated, think about this today, those who were committed spiritually committed and spiritually minded from those uncommitted and materially minded. Does that last sentence still work today? It's hard to think that there's benefits from captivity, but the reality of the situation is that there's a great bid. This is a group of people who have went from a, we've sort of in a sense traced them all the way from Egypt. They've come from Egypt into this new world. And the whole time that they were there, when they're wandering around in Mount Sinai, or in Mount Sinai, uh, they're, they're just wandering. They're lost. And they finally get to Canaan. Can we, take it? Can we not? Two, ten said no. Two said yes. And they get to Canaan immediately because God said this is what would happen immediately is they start following other gods. They start worshiping other people. They start adding in idols and things to worship that were not what needed to be worshipped. And they were taken over, Syrians to the north, Egyptians to the south, oppressed on all sides. The Babylonians come in, take them into Babylon. The people are removed. The good, the wheat from the chaff, the good figs and the bad figs. And they go and they suffer 70 years of captivity. It might not have been suffering the way that we would always think. But 70 years away from home is still a long time to be gone. But finally, these people make it back. And it sets the stage 
Because who would be a descendant of this remnant of the Jewish people that come back to Israel? Jesus. Jesus. And so without all of these struggles, do we get to Jesus? So long, you follow that route, it comes all the way back. And it's funny to me that when it was all said and done, Jesus had a lot of people with him, but they faded away. And toward the end, just about 100 people right there were. Things sort of tend to repeat themselves. And that's what we saw right here. So for us, what I want us to think, when we're trying to fulfill these missions today, we're not in captivity, but there's benefits from the struggle. And I think that that's something that sometimes people, people aren't very good at dealing with. The benefit from the struggle, from the grind, from the difficulties, but how you can grow from that and how you can be better. And so when you feel a little bit, as we talked about Sunday night, doubt, when you're feeling a little down about something, just know that, you know, you're, that somebody's attempting to take you captive, but you can still fight through that because there's plenty of examples of people who did that before. So if there's anything we can do tonight in any way, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. I've the steeds go along by the way of the cross.